This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! That's messed up, an SVU podcast. I am Lisa Traeger. And I am Kara Clank. Uh, this podcast is where we dissect an episode of SVU, the true crime it was based on, and then we have a fabulous guest, and today is no different. But before that, we chat, and we have a shit ton going on, and we have been having a lot going on, and we're really excited. Just, I mean... We're living our Sex in the City packed schedule lives. People would look in and be like, no one lives like that. And it's like, yes, we are eating oysters. Um, can you even believe it? Pasta in the streets of New York. But we are going to the Backstreet Boys tonight. So that's very thrilling. It's kind of like a TikTok countdown until then. Yeah, I refuse to unpack. I am in my house. Um, one suitcase is still in the car. I just, I can't, I can't. Lisa's coming off of a three city multinational tour. Uh, but tour makes it seem like I was working and I was mostly gallivanting through well, the countryside. 50 50 50 50 gallivanting yes. working. Um, you know, we talked about her trip to Finland and, and she, um, is back from that. And then we met up in New York and we went to go see our friend's show, Oh God, an hour about abortion at the Cherry Lane Theater. Starring, written by Allison Leiby, our dear friend. And it was amazing. We had a blast. It's such a smart, funny, great show. And then, um, you know, we get to sip champagne in the green room like a true fantasy. Um, And then we went out on the town. And then we did go to San Diego right after. And so we did tell the live audience there in San Diego some of these stories. But that's just what happens when you see us live. Yeah, if you see us live, you get the tea first. Um, Don't be like these, you know, if you're the 200-something people in San Diego, don't be like, oh, this story again. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, we got to let everybody know. So we went to Allison's show, which, by the way, has been extended at the Cherry Lane. So if you're listening to this now, I think you can still go see it. But I do want to say, Kara missed this, but my friends and I were waiting outside to go in. And there is, like, sharing a wall with the Cherry Lane Theater is a giant home and a preteen in ballet clothes comes out of it. And I'm like, I can't believe you're living here. Like, yeah, like on Cherry Lane in New York City. It's it's like... And the mom was just, like, there, and I wanted to be like, can you just give us a rundown? Like, I don't... You just, <laughs> like... What? What's the, the deal? Fuck? Yeah, who has the money? Is it family? Um, did somebody come up with a patent for an amazing idea? What? What's going on? How do you guys <sighs> live here? 
Yeah, it, it is like incredible. the most beautiful, picturesque little street. Um, it, we were rolling like 20 people deep. We just knew so many people that were going to see the show or friends that wanted to come with us. So we had a big I mean, Kara flew in. You flew in. Yeah, to go to I the was show. able awesome. I was able to luckily leave my children and, and with my husband and fl- and find a ticket last minute. And I was able to fly in. And I was so happy that I did because I just Do you want to tell everyone about the dramatic story of uh, <laughs> Daycare and communicable diseases. Oh my God. <laughs> Listen, I, I, we're living in a COVID world, but my child currently has hand, foot, and mouth. Uh, I don't, it's like the most disgusting name for a disease. It's literally just a rash, and there's nothing you can do about it, but it's like very contagious. So she can't go to school. So she's home right now. And so is her brother because he can't go, even though he doesn't have it yet. And it's just like, I'm sure moms are like, oh yeah, this shit, because it like ravages through daycares. It's like, but very then common. Oscar's daycare. There's multiple kids, yes. three kids with COVID. Yeah. So everything is wild. <laughs> and what I've learned through this experience is parenthood just seems like everyone just trying to not be with their children as most as time as possible. <laughs> and COVID really puts a fork in their plans. Well, the other thing is too, is like Lisa's always like, Carol, what do you have going on? And I'm always like, not anything compared to what you have going on. And I finally was like going out to Joshua Tree overnight trip to see this musician, Nico Case, who I love that I've been wanting to see at this iconic venue called Pappy and Harriet's that's out in the desert. I was so excited. And then I can't go now because my kid has fucking hand, foot, and mouth whose alternate name is Coxsackie. I think that's the alternate name for hand, foot, and mouth. <laughs> like someone was like, oh, that's the worst name. And I go, really? The other name is Coxsackie. So <laughs> it's just like horrible. But we're living through it. I, honestly, Rosie's in the best mood. I can't believe she has fucking like disease right now. She's in a great mood. Can only kids have it? Like adults can get it, but it's like a sore throat and it's like not as like, like it's just not Got as it. likely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having a spiral if I should have watched the kids so you could have gone to Joshua Tree. No, no. You would have had to watch two children all day, Lisa. You would have seriously jumped out of a window. That's why I was like, <laughs> like my, I had a babysitter ready to pick them up from school, do dinner, stay over, take them to school. But with school out of the picture, I was like, we can't do it. But that's very sweet of you to even you let that cross your mind. We did get to go to dinner last night. We did get a babysitter. We went to dinner last night. We stayed out for like two and a half hours. And then we were like, should we go to a bar? And then we were like, let's just go home and watch Drag Race. <laughs> and then I, of course, fell asleep. But I'm really excited to watch the end. Um, but... Well, it's nice. One year, was it two years ago? You had a big dinner party. Oh, yeah. For your so for our five year, our five year was June of the pandemic. And I was potted with Lisa and a couple of other couples. And I we had a little dinner party in our backyard. And it was, I thought it was pretty nice. It was lovely. But yeah, it was great. Yeah. You fed us a gourmet multi-course meal for your wedding anniversary yeah. that none of us were at. Well, yeah, but it was also like, <laughs> it was also like we were dying to do anything that felt like an event because yeah. it was, we'd already been two and a half months sequestered in our homes. But Drag Race, yeah. my jaw is on the floor every single day. I'm like, oh my God. No, They're they. So good. On, I'm on the Hysteria podcast as well. I'm I'm like a r- rotating person on that podcast, and they they do a thing called Sanity Corner, and my like a, just something you're doing to keep yourself like calm. And I was like, honestly, this sounds so basic, but Drag Race All Stars the winter season, it's just like. There's no real shade and that's like okay with me because they're all just so excellent and no one's going home and it's just like relaxing me how good everyone relaxing. is. Relaxing. Yeah. It is relaxing. Everybody's no. so good. Like <laughs> no I No one is a full mentally ill monster. Yeah. You know, no one's just like, "Wow, you look like shit." Yeah, there's none of that. Yeah, Cuz no one looks like shit. 
That's actually, I like when people say they look like shit. I take all this back. Well, but I'm also not sitting there going, you're obviously not going to make it past episode three. Can we get you out of here? You know what I mean? There's no filler. It's all just quality, like drag excellence. Like everyone's When I thought of lunatic, I thought of like a Gia gun being like, you seem nervous. Yeah. Are you nervous? (laughs) Such a lunatic. Like, I love Gia gun, but fully off the rails. Um, uh, Wait, so let's go back to New York really quickly and tell everybody what happened. So we, so I walk in a little bit like after Lisa and she's like, Arden's here. Our good friend Arden Marine, an amazing comedian. I've known her for years. She's the best. Actually, I would say a very well-known, um, if you saw her face, you would know her. Yeah, oh yeah. I say comedian because that's how I know her, but she's an actress. She was on Mad TV. She's on. She was on a show called Insatiable. I'm not sure if it's still on, but like. Um, it's not, but I watched two seasons. People were mad, yeah, but yeah. I liked it. So then her friend, a co-star from that show is there and I run to Kara going, Arden brought someone from SVU and Kara could care less. Well, I go, oh, cool, because she doesn't give me any other information. She just goes, Arden brought somebody who's been on SVU and I go, neat. Like, I met a fucking lady who was on SVU last week and she was boring as hell. Like, she had a small little part. I, I had no idea who it was. And then... I go to see Lisa at her seat. I look to Arden next to her. And then I look next to Arden. And I'm like, my eyes had to like adjust. Like I was like, oh my God, it's fucking Dr. Gregory Yates. Like humongous part, multiple episode arc. One of the biggest villains of all time on SVU. He just, yeah, killed so many people and buried him in a beach. And he's just like sitting there. And I'm like, ah, I go, will you be on our podcast? I think that's like the first thing I said to him. I just like screamed, will you be on our podcast? And he was like, yeah, sure. You guys are nuts. Like, it was yeah. really funny. Well, we were also from Happy Hour because then I looked at him and I go, we've had a few. Yeah. And then we he were, understood we were, what was up. We were flying high from Happy Hour, a, 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 a tuna nacho. We had a lot going on. <laughs> but also, there's no need to fry a deviled egg. We want a deviled oh. egg for the cooling nature of it. We don't need it fried and warm and like gushing out of yes. the fry. It like, was like a, I'll, you know what? If I want that, I'll take a jalapeno popper. I don't need that in a deviled egg. Yes. They were trying to jalapeno popper fi a deviled egg at this place we went. But no, we found this great, one of those like West well, Village. Well, we didn't find it. Our friend told us our to Our friend there. found it, but our friend found it. But one of these, those ones where you go downstairs in the West Village. So you, you're like in a, like a, a cool basement bar on a warm June day. No one was in there, basically just our friends. And we just had a wonderful happy hour. Bounced over to the abortion show, met Dr. Gregory Yates. Afterwards, we all got, like a bunch of us got to go and have champagne in the VIP room with Allison. Then we go to this after restaurant and we're all hanging out. It was so fun. Well, I had a debacle there. I had a social debacle because I walk and there's a table of, filled with people we know and there's free seats behind so I get the host I'm like can you set up a table for 10 we have a bunch more people coming and he's like no absolutely not and I was like whatever and then he finally does it he sets up the table you all arrive and you're like we're not sitting at this table we're going to the bar and then the rest of the night this man is glaring at me and then glaring at this empty (laughs) table I made him set up and it was just, um, it was humiliating. And I'm I wish sorry. I was It wasn't at the really bar me. I mean, it was like other no, people. No, it was my like, best friend yeah. who stabbed me in the back. <laughs> she was like, I'm not fucking sitting there. And then she, she went goes, to the bar. She goes, I can't deal with splitting a check with 20 people. And I was like, fair enough. And so I just went to order at the bar. And then suddenly I was just sitting at the bar for a while. But, but I had amazing pasta. I would go back there for sure. Um, but then. It was okay, called so- Leroy House, right? I don't know. Well, I want to give them a shout out if you said it's the most amazing pasta. I'm trying to. It was a very good pasta. 
You didn't eat any of the pasta? No, I got the artichokes. I got something else. And then they cleared the artichokes before we were done. And I like made a face. And the guy's like, I'll take it off your bill. And I was like, oh, thank you. I just made a face, but thank you. <laughs> um, no, I got a couple of things and it was all really good. It was good. So, you know, Kara described the pregame place and being like, it was empty. No one was there. And that was our goal for the after after. But like, it was pride in the yes. village. On a Friday night. It was and crazy. So we were walking from bar to bar going, two packed and then leaving. Or everyone's 24. And it was like, we went to seven bars. But as someone that was just in New York for a quick weekend, it was like, I'll walk around the West Village all day long. Yeah. Like, I love this. But it was like, why is there not an empty bar? Yeah, we just kept being like, why isn't there yeah. a bar with like three old gay men in it? Like, why? Why are we like having to find so many young people? Um, people were out. Yeah. New York was a lot. Yeah, it was, it was cool. amazing. It was cool. It was cool. Just not for our purposes. And then I had a friend's wedding the next day. So I didn't want to get too wild on a Friday yeah. either. I had a big. And um, I had a 7 a.m. flight and I flew <laughs> yeah. into LA to throw my son's one year birthday party because I am actually a maniac. <laughs> um, uh, there's like we a love photo, an event. There's a photo of me. I'll put it on the Instagram for the podcast. It's like, literally me holding both my kids and you can just see in my eyes, I've been drinking for two nights. Like you can just see like, she, I can't be doing this right now. Like both my kids are on my lap and everybody's trying to take a cute picture of me and my eyes are like, help me, you know? So, but I was, it was worth it. The, the birthday party went great and the trip to New York was amazing. And then San Diego, thank you everybody who came out at San Diego, waited to meet us and everything. We had the best time. It was such a fun show. You yeah. Guys, yeah everyone, Mic Drop yeah. Comedy. Lisa's going to be there in August. If you live in the San Diego area, Lisa's going to be at Mic Drop Comedy. That club is fucking on it. They're a new club. So they like, I don't know if they're trying to prove themselves or what, but they're doing it. Like they've got everything covered. They made us a There's menu. There's a table. Oh yeah, the menu is amazing, but also the table is made out of candy. So the table's in a the, drawer. In the green room. <laughs> in the green room. Yeah. You don't get to yeah. sit at it, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's in the green room. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it and fun. like it just like they, they've got, they made us a menu that was like, um, elite squad elote like all this like all stuff that was like about exactly right about our names and the podcast and SVU it was so cute so anyway great place go see Lisa in August anyway crazy fun weekend and now tonight we're going to the Backstreet Boys and we'd like I mean we should probably shout out our uh, friend and Backstreet hostess who listens to the pod Sophia it's her birthday and she invited us and we're so excited yeah, she is um, Hannah's bestie from Canada, from Montreal. Not that Hannah's from there. Listen, it's very... <laughs> oh, and I came home and our friend Alex sent us keychains that say, especially heinous, an executive producer, Dick Wolf. Oh, yeah, they're so cute. Oh, I have a photo of the menu. So, yeah, there's a drink called Probable Cause, <laughs> which is funny. It's a fishbowl. Um, Benson Flight, Re-Examine Wrap. Dun Dun Sliders. It was fucking... We should make, like, our own menu that's, like, ex parte, platter, like, the stuff we talk about on the podcast more. Wait, but I... Okay, I was looking for this. So, obviously, we love social events. So, of course, we're going to fly to go to weddings, to go to events, events, events. Um, But then I did see this um, horoscope meme that (laughs) really... You laughed at my face, didn't you, while I wasn't there? It is, like... Such a read. So it's like fake vulture articles. And it says in quotes, I hate this city, says a Virgo who never leaves their house. And I was like, 
motherfuckers. Wow. 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 Uh, <laughs> wow, Bethany. Wow. I feel attacked. I feel very attacked. <laughs> I feel very attacked. And not me. I'm talking about Lisa. I'm a Virgo who loves to leave my house. I'm the opposite. I'm the September side of Virgo. I don't know if it's the August <laughs> side that likes to chill. But I'm also out. I do want to shout out my friend Emmy's wedding. I met a listener, Meg, her husband, Kevin. They have uh, a wine shop in a town. I can't remember. I'm sorry, Meg. Uh, but so I met Meg and Kevin. Very good chats. And then Emmy and Nick at El Penguino. I do need a shout out. And I think every wedding should adopt this. Just have a giant bucket of caviar and a giant bucket of potato chips and crackers. And that's how I, that's a wedding, okay? Yeah. Dipping caviar till two in the morning because there's too much caviar and no one could finish it. I, like, what is this Great Gatsby, like, <laughs> fantasy? I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Just dipping into caviar. I want it all over. And um, shout out to Rainbow Cookies. So just, that's it. That's, and Hell their yeah. love. And no, their love. <laughs> speaking of wine, we did meet two listeners um, in San Diego. They both had podcasts. One girl has a podcast called The Chatty Fox that's about wine, I guess. But then her friend goes... Her friend goes, oh, yeah, on my podcast, I talk about you guys all the time. And we go, what's your podcast? She goes, it's called That Fuck Me Up. It's about shows that fuck me up. And it's like, you are so funny. <laughs> so if you're interested in another podcast, I guess, about TV shows that fucked this girl up, <laughs> there they are. It just really are. made me laugh. Um, and they like it. Okay, also, I love seeing all the, like, aunts and nieces, mom, daughters out at the shows. That makes me feel yeah. happy. And one woman said she lets her children listen to the intro. So I do love that. Oh, yeah, she goes, she loves it when you guys say idiot or stupid. And I'm like, what about if we say dumb bitch, which we say all the time? <laughs> she was like, whatever. I was like, yeah, I mean, I swear in front of Rosie. I'm trying to decrease the importance of swear words. You yeah, know? and oh, I yelled at a group of people at the Fire Island screen oh, that was we went to, but so they wouldn't funny. stop talking. They wouldn't so stop wait, talking. So wait, so there's a scene in Fire Island that I love where Bowen Yang sings a Britney Spears song, and I didn't know Bowen could sing. Like, he sounds great. And so when the song's going on, Lisa leans forward and looks at me because there's a couple people in between us, but we're wearing masks, so I can't see what she's saying. I just see her eyes getting wild. And so I go, I know, I didn't know Bowen could sing either. And then she turns to the guys in front of us and goes, can you seriously just be quiet for one minute. And like, I was like, oh, she was mad about the guys. I was excited about Bowen. Never mind. Miscommunication. This is the problem with masks, everyone. I'm a Republican now. <laughs> I'm an anti-masker. I've said it once. I've said it before. Uh, my good friend Julia was like, you wore a mask on your flight, right? I go, no, absolutely not. I'm done. I'm done. If you're not forcing, I'm not going to fight anyone. I'm not going to yell at an employee. If, even if I'm on the train and people around me are wearing masks, I'll wear a mask for their comfort. But no, no, no. If I have an opportunity, not. And if I'm told to, now I like roll my eyes and I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> I definitely, I'm done. No, where are your masks? Okay. my sh And I also I had a show last night, got canceled because of COVID. And I'm like, grow up. It's like, this. <laughs> grow up. Yeah. Well, it's a very COVID conscious show that got canceled. They're very strict about it. So I could see But these that. men were talking right from the jump and I knew what they were going to do. So I quietly went, you're going to stop talking, right? They ignored me. Maybe they didn't hear me. Maybe I should have spoken louder. And then I realized, like, okay, I'm at this gay fest. There are a bunch of gay men. I've never even been to Fire Island. Like, you know, let them celebrate. If they want to chat a little in this event, I'm going to just, I'm going to try to focus on this movie, and it is fine. I'm going to have a good time. But they wouldn't stop. They wouldn't stop. They were acting like they were MST3Kng the movie. Like, they were just talking. You know what I mean? Like, they were just doing mystery science theater commentary, like, the whole time. 
the whole time. And it's like, this movie comes out in Hulu in three hours. Yeah. You could have watched it at home and talked <laughs> the whole time. Like, what so are you true. doing? We were at a 10 p.m. screening hours before it comes out. Like It wasn't even the premiere screening that was earlier. It was just like... I, and then I broke and then I just couldn't handle it anymore. And then they stopped talking and it was such so much more enjoyable. I was like, I should have yelled at them hours ago. But listen, hours at ago. this point, this movie's been out for three weeks. But if you haven't seen Fire Island yet, it is so <laughs> fucking good. You guys should see it. If you watched our very first live show, Joel Kim Booster, the writer and star of this movie, was a guest on our live show. He's a pal of ours. The movie has such an amazing cast. It's beautifully shot. It's so heartfelt, but also hilarious. So many good jokes. Like, I can't say enough about it. I really, really enjoyed it. Why all the flags? I mean, yeah, it is um, It is such... We said that all weekend, I just have to say. <laughs> it, it I'm just like, why all the flags? <laughs> Will anyone trade me a Crest White Strip for a prep? Like, I just thought it was like, there were so many jokes. Like, I was so impressed with Joel's acting, but the writing really blew me away too. Like, I was... Really, and nods to like uh, Housewives, nods to Clueless. Obviously, if you read the, like Pride and Prejudice, you'll see more undercover. Nods scoop. to Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny. I mean, it was. It's a great. It's it's just a great movie. So, you've got Hulu probably because you're watching us for you. So get on there and watch Fire Island. And I don't know. Should we start? It feels like we've been here talking. We've been here a long time, but <laughs> we've had a jam packed. Lots of jam-packed adventures. So, of course, we're going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, of course, of course. And That's um, our job. I'm, now I'm like, did we forget anything? Oh, the bad date. Should we just keep them waiting forever? Uh, <laughs> next week, we talk about the po bad or date. Po or post-mortem. Maybe in the post-mortem. We'll see. Oh, Whatever. yeah. Make you guys listen to the end of the episode. You got to listen to the whole thing if you want to hear about Lisa's bad date. But now we're, yeah, now Let's it's, get we're started. We're, we're starting. starting. We're starting. Okie doke, here we go. A Legacy, season two, episode four. Wow, airing November 10th in the year 2000. Can you believe? I can't because it's such a vivid episode for me. Like my memory of this episode is crystal clear sharp. And yeah. I can't believe that it's season two. It's so true. I've seen this one a bunch of times and it doesn't, yeah, it feels like a more, like, I would guess season six or seven, if you asked me. Like, it doesn't feel like it's so far away. But it is one of those original babies. And we open on a douchey high school kid who's on a landline at 7 a.m. talking about football with his friend. Like... I don't, I can't relate to you. Um, the mom comes out and is like, hurry up, kids. You'll be late for school. And there's like a little boy sitting at the table, like just like drinking OJ with like, you know, soggy trick cereal next to him. And the mom asks, has anyone seen Emily? And the douche son's like, I don't know. And it's not his responsibility to wake her up. Like you can tell he's um, not easy to live with. And then she tells the little boy who I thought was six, but you later find out he's like four, um, to hurry up because they're leaving in 10 minutes. And yeah. Yeah, I feel like the soggy tricks and the OJ together already gave me like a bad taste in my mouth immediately. But the mom goes into Emily's room. They live in a beautiful apartment, multi-level. And the mom goes into Emily's room and she's in bed unresponsive. And when she goes to pick her up, she's like limp and she notices a huge contusion on the back of her neck. And she like yells for the douche son, Justin, to come up and help her. And now we're at the hospital and a doctor's giving Benson and Stabler the walk and talk breakdown. She's a seven-year-old girl with a subdural hematoma and there's evidence that indicates 
indicates the pressure's been building for hours. And I will say, personal experience, my mom fell in a restaurant in San Francisco because she's wears dumb shoes. Like, she never wears shoes with any support. She's completely style over function. And she That fell sounds in- so shocking to me. Oh, yeah. She'll buy, like, if she finds cute little flats with no support for her arches, she'll buy them in seven colors. So she fell in these shoes, hit her, hit, like, fell. We didn't even realize. She didn't really hit her head. She just fell with, like, such a velocity that, like, a couple of weeks later, she had a subdural hematoma. And, like, thank God they found it because those can, like, be really bad. And she had to get, like, she had to get it, like, drained or I don't know what they do, but it was like she was in the hospital. It was like really scary. And it was fully, she had not hit her head. She had just fallen with like a, the way that your brain can like smack to the back of your skull, I guess, if you're in a bad fall. But does she wear like comfortable doctor shoes? No, that's the thing. And like, we went to Europe one time and I was like, can you please wear sneakers? And she was like, "Mm." she loves like ballet flats and loafers and stuff like that. But like the not with any support. So wild. It's I crazy. Just, I had my sister and I one year for Christmas got her like nice loafers from like a fancier place that like had like, you know, arch support. And she was like, thanks. But like, I don't know if she ever wore them. Like, she's crazy. Um, but <laughs> that's the story about a subdural. Anyway, subdural hematomas are scary because they just can like build in pressure underneath your skull forever until something bad happens. Anyway, um, Emily did not fall in a restaurant. The doctor says it is blunt trauma and she has fractured ribs, pelvic bruising, and vaginal trauma indicates sexual assault. Ugh, terrible. And then we see mom hysterical on a couch nearby. She's got douche son Justin and the little cutie Michael is next to her and the father is out of town on business. And Benson's like, so have a nice weekend. And Stabler's like, I don't remember having a weekend. And these are just the hard-hitting jokes that I think we can expect to get um, at the end of a cold open in season two. <laughs> so we are at the top of act one. The mom, whose name is Jamie, is crying to Benson and Stabler. And we find out that Emily had just gotten back from a visit with her dad. So she is from a previous relationship. Justin is her stepson, so her husband's son. And then Michael is her child with her current husband. So they're like a very blended family. And then Justin is, you know, giving insane attitude. Like, can we go now? I have a quiz and trig. And it's like really annoying to watch him because... Well, because even if it's not your stepsister and it's just a random little girl, like, wouldn't you at least be like, I hope she's okay. Like, yeah. It, it's Like, psycho. he has no feel... He has like no empathy. Like, it's weird. And uh, he is the kind of kid that Stabler loves to fuck with. So like, you can see Stabler's like little eyebrows like perk up. Like, I'm gonna fucking punch this kid at some point. And then Emily's dad, uh, Denny Correa, shows up and he is played by Yancy Arias, who has an extensive of IMDb. And, um, you know, the wife, uh, Jamie and Denny immediately start fighting and he wants to see the little girl and the mom's like, get out of here. And Jamie tells Benson and Stabler that Denny's always had a problem with his anger, but since she got married to her current husband, it's escalated. So, um, now we're with Stabler and he's talking to Denny and he's like, she watched The Lion King all afternoon and then I cooked her a quick dinner and her mom picked her up. And he throws an accusation out at Jamie's husband, whose name is Randall McKenna. And he's like, he touches Emily. I saw the bruises. And he asked Emily what happened and she started to cry. And so Denny reported it, but Jamie told the caseworker that it was Denny. And Jamie like wants what she wants no matter who it hurts is what he says. And so... Like, she was able to twist his report onto him. onto him. So, at the precinct, Stabler tells us that Emily's abuse is long-term, but that the head injury is from a window of 10 to 24 hours before she was admitted to the hospital. Um, 
the rape kit turned up a hair and a nylon bristle embedded in abrasions on her butt. So like an who wrote that? That's insane. I know. A hair bristle in a butt? Like, that is so, such a wild detail, even for SVU. It is such a wild detail, but when I hear it, I'm like, oh, so somebody got spanked with a hairbrush. Like, that's what I immediately think. Like, I I wouldn't think that that was, like, a sexual thing, but they talk about this later in the episode. So anyway, Finn and Munch are both in a shirt and tie. The dress code was much more, you know, strict back in the early seasons, I would say. We have not yet seen, you know, Finn's leather blazer that he wears all the time. (laughs) So in this window of time, she was with her mom's family and her dad's family. So it's really hard to narrow down, like, who could have done it because she was, you know, bleeding internally. And so we we don't know, like, when this happened. Um, Denny, we find out, is a Cuban immigrant who did Time for Assault in 1993. And now he works as a cook at the Greenbrier School, which is the school where Emily goes. And the stepdad, Randall McKenna, is a Wall Street guy, like Mr. Moneybags. And... We find out that Michael, the little guy who's like four, is disabled, nonverbal, and that Justin is 15. So that's like the stats on the family. And Randall, the rich man, is still in D.C. on business. So then Munch says, which brings us back to Desi, which is referencing Desi Arnaz, I guess, because he's also Cuban. This joke would not fly today, but this is a very Munch joke-heavy episode. Um, I'm calling his little joke Munchables. I don't know. We can brainstorm <laughs> some other ideas. So, okay, no. Munchables, that is our new fucking merch. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Munchables. Like little... <laughs> it would have a little sunglasses. A little, what, like um, a, a little mic, a spy kit? I don't know. I guess I now I'm done. A coffee? <laughs> like a something matzo ball je- soup? Yeah, something JFK. Oh, wait, doesn't he like fig milkshakes? He likes fig shakes. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) So, um, Munchable. (laughs) Munchable. So after this little Munchable, we get Finn being like, okay, so how did this society chick and this like cook end up together? You know, like, and it's the tale as old as time. We're all thinking it. Maybe it's racism. Maybe it's, you know, whatever we're thinking, but we all thought it. (laughs) Right. And the answer is a tale as old as time, rehab. Uh, She was there kicking an amphetamine habit and he was teaching a dance class. And that's funny to me. Um, Like, I love a Zumba class and I hope that, I bet you he had a very popular class because he's like cute. When I um, worked at Fat Camp, we had a dancer from France and we learned dance moves to Estelle's um, American Boy. And he was the hit of the camp, I would say. (laughs) He didn't speak English and he would just break dance and we loved it. I love that. Wow. That's That's what this reminded me of. (laughs) Okay. So he is the French counselor at Fat Camp, essentially, at rehab. And he got her pregnant and the mother made the rehab fire Denny. Uh, And the mother is Lois Huntington, the chair of the Avery Huntington Foundation. She is the widow of the late ambassador. Okay. So now we're really getting an idea of how, like, high up level Jamie is. Like, her dad was an ambassador. Um... But also, you're not supposed to, like, fuck the patients at the rehab where you teach dance, you know? But he's not a doctor or therapist. It's not like he signed a thing. Like, it's wrong what he did, but it's not illegal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. No one's underage, so it could be, like, unethical or something. But not really, you know, it's like, it's the arts and crafts teacher. And you're not, and, like, power, Right, and no one's under the influence because you're at rehab, you know, getting clean, so... 
Anyway, Cragen's like, everybody get working or the rich people are going to be up my ass, which is usually, that's like a very Cragen thing. Is like, oh shit, this involves rich people. Let's get going. They're going to come after me. So now we're at an apartment with a great view, but very old style and furnishings. And Lois Huntington has like the helmet hair and she's telling the detectives that Denny took advantage of Jamie when she was vulnerable. And uh, a butler is serving them tea. I like how they mix it up. Like a lot of times there's maids, you know, we've talked about old school maid outfits versus plain clothes maid outfits. And this is a full-on butler. This is a man serving them tea. And Olivia just like takes a cup of tea while she's um, being served and uh, while she's questioning the witness. And it's very funny. So there's a framed picture of Bill Clinton on the side table next to Stabler. And I just thought that was wild. And also a listener did send us a screenshot of a photo on Benson's desk of Benson and Obama together, which is obviously Marishka and Obama together. But it's how did Benson meet Obama? I'd love to know. End the backlog. Anyway, um, Lois explains that she tried to get Jamie to abort the pregnancy. And they're like, okay, well, when did this addiction start? And she's like, oh, please, they're prescription diet pills. Like, she's downplaying the fuck out of the addiction. Like, it's not a big deal. She said Jamie had a discipline problem. And she was an only child and her father indulged her. She was daddy's little girl. And when he died, she became badly behaved. And so she shipped her off to boarding school at 11. And that's pretty early to go to boarding school. I guess there are like boarding middle schools, but that's young. Uh, Usually start in high school at like 14. But then the mother says, well, at least the pregnancy straightened Jamie out. She said after Jamie filed for custody, Denny broke three bones in Randall's face and threatened to kill him. And Randall offered Denny a deal. He goes, "If if you will give up custody of Emily to us, I will not file charges against you for, you know, breaking my nose in three places or whatever. And the deal expires on Friday. So we are in the middle of the deal uh, time period. And Denny has until then to sign the papers. Lois hopes that Denny refuses and gets the jail time he deserves and calls him a vile creature. But I bet if he was a white fry cook, she'd be like, fine, let's get you a job in the mailroom at the foundation. You know, she'd help him out more, but she's probably a very racist woman. So now we are at ACS and we're talking to a social worker and she is very very familiar, this woman. And I looked her up. Her name is Michelle Hurst. And this is her second of five SVU episodes she's done. So that's where I know her from. She was also in season one of Orange is the New Black. But I don't remember her character because that seems like a million years ago to me. But she's done original recipe Law and Order. She's done Criminal Intent. She's a Dick Wolf baby. So um, they gave joint custody to Denny when Emily was a little baby because Jamie was still struggling with her addiction and the baby was sick. And then Lois, it turns out, not only supported this arrangement, but used her connections to make it like go through faster. So about a year ago, Jamie started challenging the custody arrangement and they investigated these claims of abuse, but they couldn't find anything. And Finn's like, uh, broken bones? And she's like, dude, kids are clumsy as hell. Like, get out of here. Like, their, their kids have broken bones all the time. Like, riding a bike, like, I don't know what to tell you. And Munch really tries to sass this woman. Like, is that how you sleep at night? And she goes, oh, me? I haven't had a good night's sleep in 10 years. Like, don't even try to come for me. Like, my life is terrible. I work at ACS. And it is really tough because ACS does fuck up and they are also underpaid and overworked. So, like, we've talked about this in previous episodes and I'm sure we will again today. So at the Greenbrier School, the principal is filling in Munch and Finn about how Denny works three shifts in the kitchen, but he never misses going to story time in Emily's classroom. He sounds like a very hardworking dad, but this principal clearly is like on his side. And they're like, I knew it. I knew it. Michelle Hurst. 
She's in Sex in the City as well. I just looked. I oh, knew yeah. it. I fucking knew it. So what's her episode? I'm pretty sure it's the one where Samantha takes an AIDS test. Yes. And she's the nurse that takes her in to be like, what kind of condoms? And like, can you not, can you just wear a condom? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like that. that was her. <laughs> yes. I think I saw really quickly that she was in Sex in the City and I was like, oh, nurse, maybe that was like just a tiny part. But that is a very, like, I remember that episode very, very well, actually. Just not her part, I guess. (laughs) Sorry. So they're asking the principal about the report she filed because I guess she filed a report with ACS and she says, yeah, I have to report all injuries. But she said, Emily broke her leg learning to ride a bike. And the principal is like really going to bat for Denny. She's known him for six years and all that time she's never even heard him like raise his voice at Emily. And so she's like, okay, well, who else hangs with Emily? And then here we go with the fucking unhinged plot point. Oh yeah, this loose man named Henry Abedin, he's the minister of protocol for the Brunei mission. He's a friend of the school and he's taken a special interest in Emily and that's not a red flag at all. He takes her to dance class, reads her, reads to her. They just love each other. It's a platonic love between a seven-year-old girl and an adult man. I, I really just cannot. So she's basically skywriting the word pedophile um, over them. And then... This clueless principal directs them to this little girl named Jennifer. And she's like, that's Emily's best friend. Like, they're freaking frack. Like, go talk to her. So now Munch is talking to Jennifer. And this girl, Jennifer, was actually kind of a successful child actress. She was in Cider House Rules and The Patriot and The Show 24, but she does not act anymore. Um, But I just noticed she had, like, an impressive, like, run as a child. Anyway, she thinks the name Munch is funny, and she is correct. And she says... And he, and he goes, well, what about this? If I ever have kids, I'm going to have to call them munchkins. Another munchable. And he's absolutely killing it with this seven-year-old. She loves him. She's immediately warm to this old stand-up comedian wearing dark glasses. <laughs> I get uncomfortable when the detectives, like, talk down to children and do their little child act. It makes me feel weird. Yeah, I think because, honestly, I will say, I think that's because there's a movement now that's more modern to talk to kids, like, respectfully and, like, in a way, like, not like an adult, but like not that they're like baby talk, you know? Yeah. And I think that's more modern. And so in the show, like they do capture a lot of like, and what about your friend? Anything about, you know, like that. I, I like hate yeah. it. It's like, yeah, it's it's cringy. So he brings up Emily and he's like, and she's like, yeah, Henry takes her to shows, buys her toys. Like I want, she's like, I want a Henry, you know? And then he says, Emily's dad was mad because her mommy was trying to take Emily away and he was taking her on a trip to Cuba. So this girl's got like all the tea and she is spilling it in this like classroom. So then this poor girl is like, okay, we're best friends now. Do you want to see my Barbie with hair that grows? And Munch is like, nah, I got what I needed. I'll see you later. <laughs> like he just fully, I'm like, Munch, take two seconds and look at her little Barbie doll. But then Munch can't get up out of the little kid chair and it's very funny. So um, we're getting a lot of Munch physical and verbal comedy in this episode. At the precinct, the two duos, Munch and Finn and Benson and Stabler are like filling each other in and they notice Munch is kind of wincing and he like, I think he's like still in pain because he couldn't, because he had to sit in a little kid chair. And he goes, now I'm a pain in my own ass. Munchable. Um, So Finn found the two one-way tickets to Cuba via Quebec in Emily and Denny's names. So turns out the little girl had the goods. And so now Munch and Stable are talking to Denny and he's like, I just wanted to get Emily away from her abuser. And they're like, so you beat the shit out of him? And he's like, I just went to talk to him to see if I could shame him into leaving my daughter alone. Then he pushed me. It happened so fast. They bring up his past arrest. They're like, you beat up a store clerk. And he was like, he was trying to shoot me. And they were like, you were robbing his store. And he goes, I was hungry. I just defected from Cuba. Your government says, welcome to America. Goodbye and good luck. And it's like, yes, that is absolutely what they 
do for sure. That's also what they do with babies. Like we do a lot of bullshit. And uh, so that sucks. Yeah, like, that's a, it's been embarrassing for sure being from America across the pond recently. Yeah, it's I like bet. everyone's like, Ugh. or like I met a cab driver and he go, I was like, where are you from? He goes, well, Serbia. And then your country bombed us. And I went, Sorry about that. Fair you know, enough. Like, and then one of the other people I met was like, you know America's crazy. I go, yes, I'm not like. Not yeah. From, yeah, yeah, um, I know it. No, I remember I remember back in um, when I went on my semester abroad and stuff, I would like meet, I would hear people with what I thought were English um, American accents and I would go, oh, are you guys from the States? And they'd be like, we're from Canada. Like they would get like offended and I'd be like, that was the first time when I was 20 years old when I went abroad to Italy that I realized people didn't like America. I was like, I just like, you know, what did I know? Like up until that point, like I hadn't really yeah, left the country much. But America's Regina George. They're like obsessed with us. They know all <laughs> our leadership. They know all our news. They talk about us. They watch our movies. They love our music, but then they hate our guts because we're yeah. lunatics. <laughs> we're bullies. Yeah, it's like who has been physically, <laughs> who has been physically <laughs> harmed by Regina George and the entire world is raising their hand. Yeah, um, but they can't get enough. They're just like, ooh, Michael Jordan, you know? Like, <laughs> and then we're like, okay, and now we're bombing you. Um, yeah, it's So terrible. it's weird. Yeah, so you you are starting to, like, feel for Denny because you're like, yeah, that sucks. You have a record because you, like, tried to steal a bag of chips because you were starving, you know? Like, and and they're like, but if you're such a victim, why does everyone else get hurt? And, he, and Munch accuses him of breaking Emily's leg, and he's like, I would never hurt my daughter. And they're like, right, like, Randall, the store clerk, Jamie, why don't you just tell us the truth? And Daddy Cragen, like, busts in to grab them. And he's like, bad news. Lab results clear Denny. The blood doesn't match the hair from the rape kit. And I guess that's that. So Denny's in the clear. So at a meeting, uh, Cragen is standing next to Dr. Emil Skoda, a.k.a. J.K. Simmons, baby. And he is mostly an original recipe guy, but he has been in six episodes of SVU. And he was kind of the, he was the Huang before Huang, the pre-Huang Huang. And so Cragen says they have to reassess the profile now that Den Denny has been eliminated. And Dr. Skoda explains that whoever did this must have a finely tuned social radar to be able to navigate the two families and social groups in Emily's life. Like, you know, there's the dad side and the mom side. So this is about displaced rage, he says, sexual inadequacies or abuse in the, in the perpetrator's own childhood. And uh, his insecurities drive his abusive behavior, but they could also drive him to excel in other areas. So he could be the head of a Fortune 500 company. So that obviously is like alarm bells, Randall, the rich daddy, the rich stepdaddy. And as we've discussed in former episodes, always beware of a stepdaddy. And then it turns out his plane didn't leave for D.C. until Monday morning. So it's possible he was home the night that she was, um, you know, hurt. And so now they're looking back at Harry Abaddon as well. And I looked up Brunei because this guy is the minister for, for protocol for the mission to Brunei. I don't know what any of that means. And Brunei is this like, tiny nation of 400,000 people that's on the island of Borneo in Southeast Asia. So Borneo is part of Malaysia, I believe. And then Brunei is like its own little tiny country in it on this island. So I just thought that was interesting. It's very small. Um, Benson and Stabler finally go visit the rich stepdaddy, Randall McKenna. And in a classic Law & Order fashion, he does not have times for the cops. He has to be at 30 Rock in 40 minutes. Okay. Um, they've been married for three years. 
And Lois was a client and introduced them. So Jamie's mom, Lois, was his client and was like, oh, you should meet my daughter uh, with a daughter. And they do have a four-year-old son. So clearly the pregnancy fast-tracked the marriage if they've only been married for three years. Like, Stabler's like, we did the math. And also I want to shame you because I'm weirdly Catholic about this kind of stuff. And uh, they bring up Denny's accusations and he denies it all. Like, he's like, I have not touched her. And they're like, okay, cool. Give us DNA. And he's like, you've already insulted me. I'm not going to let you invade my privacy too. So he lawyers up and leaves for his meeting at 30 Rock. And then Munch and Finn are at the Brunei place. I don't know what this is. Like, it's like, I don't know if you're like an ambassador or diplomat. I don't really get what it is. And Munch is back with the zingers. He like points to one of the statues and he goes, I've got one of those hanging from a rope in my shower, but it has a spring fresh scent. Okay, much. And then Abaddon shows up and Finn introduces himself and this man tells us that Tutuola means the gentle one in Yoruban. And I love that for Finn. And Finn is also very, uh, very impressed that this man like knows Yoruban and knows what his last name means. So uh, John Munch is, so Munch goes, I'm John Munch. It's Romanian for the handsome one. Zing. Like we're just, it's nonstop with him today. And he talks about how he took Emily to a matinee of the Lion King. So I was confused because the dad said she watched the Lion King in the afternoon, but I guess she was at a matinee with her random benefactor. And then he brought her home to her father's house. And Lois her grandmother was with them at the theater and his driver drove them. So he's got witnesses. Like, he really didn't have opportunity to, like, molest or hurt this girl. And then they're like, oh, does Denny know that grandma comes on these field trips? And they're like, we thought it would be better to, like, keep that from him since he's, like, not in a great relationship with the family. So even though this grandma was, like, abort, 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 now she's, like, you know, at the Lion King matinees with her granddaughter. So I guess she does have, like, some kind of blood pumping in that black heart of hers. And so... Not that it's bad to ask your daughter to get an abortion. I, she just seems, like, mean. Anyway, uh, so we go to visit douchebag Justin at school. And he is, like, such a future fucking date rapist. I can't even handle it. Like, he's like, I don't know anything. I was asleep. And Justin's like, yeah, they argue all the time. That's why my dad never comes home anymore. Like, he's uh, he's got some anger, but he also seems like just an asshole. So now at the precinct, Abaddon has agreed to a DNA test. So that kind of makes him look pretty good. He's like, yeah, take it. Take my spit. Let's do it. And Randall is fighting it. And that makes him look guilty. So Cabot is meeting with Petrovsky in the morning about the court order for stepdaddy's DNA. And Emily is still in a coma. And Stabler makes a comment that Emily's probably safer in the hospital than she is at home. And then the camera like stays on Munch for an extra beat. So like you're, we're kind of seeing like he's pondering, like we're, we're seeing how this case is like affecting him. So... At the hospital, Munch is visiting Emily, and it's very sad. She's hooked up to machines. She's got the all-the-way-around bandages. <laughs> and Munch, <laughs> that we, we when it's on a grown man who just got his dick cut off, it's funny. But when it's on a little kid, it's a little bit more sad. And then uh, Munch brings her a stuffed lion and puts it next to her bed, which is, like, cute. That's, like, a symbol of courage and stuff, and it's very cute. I do love when you know that there's going to be a personal connection with the detective. You know what I mean? We're going to get a tale at the end yeah. of this why Munch They're cares about this kid the most. Exactly. They're setting this up like like this time it's personal for Munch. So now we're in Petrovsky's chambers with Cabot and Randall McKenna's lawyer. And the lawyer's arguing they have not proved that there was exclusive opportunity. And it's like, dude, he lives with the victim. There is exclusive opportunity all night as they sleep in the same apartment together. And Cabot fucking kills it. And Petrovsky's like, yeah, bring that Wall Street sack of shit in here for the swab. Like, I'm going with Cabot on this Maybe one. Maybe my SVU so, tattoo is going to be a heart with Petrovsky in the banner. 
I would love for you to have to explain that to people. <laughs> just like, she's this dope-ass judge. Her name's Joanna Merlin. Like, we love her. Because I do keep I think thinking, that would be like, so funny. I obviously love our detectives, but I feel weird having like a, like, you know, we're ACAB at heart. Like, yeah, it's kind of done. It's like, and it's basic. Like, I think to take a staple character who is amazing, but not a cast member, that's a move. I like it. Yeah, this is the first time. Every time you say Petrovsky, we do get joy. Like, we do get excited. Yeah. She's such a great actor. I think she teaches, too. Oh, can you imagine? Um, so now they're all chatting about the case, and Stabler gets a call that Randall McKenna is in critical condition at Mercy General. Twist, what has happened? And he has a cerebral hemorrhage from blunt force trauma. Basically, he got his ass beat. So Munch is at Denny's apartment building, being led upstairs by this very loud woman. I don't want to be like, speak out of school, but does she seem like she's Russian or Russian adjacent? The woman, she's like, oh, yes, he loves a daughter. Like, she's just like, seems like an old Russian lady who would like, that's the landlord. And um, at one point, she doesn't hear what Munch says. And he asks her a question more loudly. And she goes, you don't have to shout. And they're just like pouring the comedy into this episode because otherwise it's a dark ass episode. So anyway, Finn and Munch go through Emily's room at Denny's house. She has a really sweet little room at his house. And um, he picks up a copy of Oh, The Places You'll Go. And then they get a call from Benson that Denny got caught trying to sneak in the hospital to see Emily. And so Finn goes, hope he said his goodbyes. And we pan to Finn. He's like holding this T-shirt that is covered in blood. And it's like, dog, that's a fucking Hanes T-shirt. Like throw it out the window. You're less likely to get caught. Like why are you keeping a blood-soaked shirt in your apartment? Anyway, crime 101, you know? So Benson and Stabler are now interrogating Denny, and he's like, I didn't mean to hurt him. Friday is the deadline. I could not hand my daughter over to a man who's molesting her. Jamie told him that he broke the deal and that Randall was going to press the charges anyway, so he went to go and try to talk to Randall man-to-man, and he got stopped in the lobby by security, so he waited for Randall by his car, and then when he finally came out at almost midnight, he said... Um, when he first saw Denny, he started screaming at him and said, I'm going to charge you with harassment. And then he begged Randall, please don't do this. And Randall laughed. And we all know how men go fucking see red when that someone laughs at them. So he said, he laughed at him and said, Jamie's mother knows people at the State Department. Like, you're deported. You're out of here. And Denny just loses it. And Like, what an evil piece of shit to laugh. Like, this man just wants to be with his child. Like, do you really, you're going to laugh at him? Fucking yeah. smack his ass. I would smack his ass. It's horrible. So yeah, he loses it. He's on top of Randall. He's pummeling him with punches. And then he kind of realized, uh, this guy's not moving anymore. So he called 911. It's like, he's not cold-blooded. I think he really did like see red and just go nuts. And then he called, and he also thinks he's punching a man who's been like systematically abusing his daughter for years. So he calls 911. He goes home. He keeps his bloody Hanes t-shirt, but he changes clothes. And then he just said he wanted to see Emily one more time before he turned himself in. And I don't know. I believe him. Um, and Benson said, you did a real number on him. And then he replies, no worse than what he did to my baby. So Kind of got you there, Benson. And then Cragen is telling the gang that Denny should have let the system work for him. <laughs> it's like, LOL. Like, come on. And Munch is like, yeah, he doesn't really have a great track record with the system. I can understand why he sort of want, went vigilante. And then Benson tells them that the hair sample in the rape kit um, came from a hairbrush. So there's, I guess there was a hair and there was a bristle and the bristle is from a hairbrush. And so the hair sample was also in the hairbrush, and it comes from a member of Randall's bloodline. It's not from Randall, but it's from someone in his bloodline. So, uh-oh, that points to douchebag Justin. So, 
at the McKenna home, Jamie is whining how she's a victim and her whole family has suffered enough. And Munch is in Emily's room. No, now we're in Emily's other room at her mom's house. And he opens up this little jewelry box that's like playing music. And he finds this old hospital bracelet in there. And then as he's leaving, this is like a haunting moment. Like he sees the four-year-old little Michael who's nonverbal in the hallway. And the kid's just looking at him with this like really like sad look. Like the kid just looks really sad. And you never know why that could be, but you're just like, oh, something is fucked up here and this kid can't even talk about it because he doesn't talk. And so Stabler is now searching Justin's room and he finds a hairbrush just as Justin walks in and goes, what the hell, bro? That's mine. And uh, Stabler's face is like, if you fucking think it's beneath me to bitch slap a 15-year-old, you are so wrong. Like, I just love how Stabler looks like he really wants to kill this kid the whole time. And so now they're, they've got Justin in interrogation and he lays it all out. And this is actually a very funny line from this douchey kid. He goes, none of this would be happening if that bitch hadn't sucked my dad into her crappy life. I just thought that was like a really funny, like, yeah, yeah, this woman sucked my dad into her crappy life. Um, But, you know, he just doesn't like his stepmom, it seems. And uh, he says, all Emily does is cry and it's annoying and everything was fine until she showed up and now it all sucks and I just want them to go away. He just wants to go back to like, we don't know where his mom is, but he just wants to go back to like being with his dad. And so Jamie is telling Benson how she has come home before and found Emily crying with Justin just standing over her. And she knew he was like a resentful little fuck, but she never thought he was like full on abusing her. So this is all news to Jamie. She's very doe-eyed, like, I could not have imagined this. And then when asked about the arguing between her and her husband, she said, if we argued about anything, it was just about Justin's attitude towards Emily. So she's All this stuff that was never brought up before, she's now fully fueling the cop's theory that Justin had something to do with this. So Jamie tells Olivia that after she put Emily to bed that night, she took Michael to the drugstore to refill his asthma medication. And the line was so long and it took them an hour to get home. Her husband was at the office. And so that would be a pretty long window where Emily was with Justin alone. And Jamie's like, I looked in on her before I went to bed. She looked so peaceful. And it's like, yes, she was already in a coma. Like, so... She did look peaceful. And now she's blaming herself. Like, how could I have been so blind? Like, yada, yada. She's, you know, definitely dramatic, this woman. And so behind the one-way glass, Stabler is letting Cragen and Munch know that they got a hit on the hair and it is Justin's DNA. And maybe that's why dad resisted giving up his sample to protect his son. And so they decide to throw Justin in a cell for a little while and see if they can like scared straight him into a confession. And so they lead him through the precinct right past his like stepmom. And she's like literally going for the SVU teacher's pet award. She's like, anything else I can do? I could write out my statement. Like, she doesn't want to leave, it seems. And Olivia's like, we're all good. Like, you know, we've got you on tape. We don't need you to write it out. Like, you can get out of here with your, like, small son. So she leaves with Michael, and Munch is like, wow, she almost seems, like, disappointed. And Olivia's in, like, a, just a fashion moment. Olivia's in, like, a wine-colored, I I could say purple, but it is a little bit darker, um, high-necked sleeveless number that, like, really shows off her arms. It's, like, very 2000, I feel like. And she's, um defending Jamie. She's like, listen, her husband may never walk. Her daughter's in a coma. Her stepson's facing jail time and her ex is being deported. She's not disappointed. She's numb. And Finn's like, okay, Munch, but like, what's your theory? You seem like you want to say something. So what, like, give it up. And Munch is like, okay, well, first off, where are the hospital records that show all of this ongoing abuse? And then he shows them the hospital bracelet he found in the jewelry box and it has a name Erica Smith on it. So 
what's going on. So they go to that clinic that matches the hospital bracelet, the Hudson Free Clinic, and a nurse finds the record that Erica Smith came in for vaginal bleeding and was prescribed an antibacterial ointment and sent home. I'm like, what? They're like, didn't you suspect abuse? She's like, yeah, we filed a report, but like no one filed followed up, you know, probably because it's a fake name. And then they're like, well, did they leave an address? And the nurse is like, yeah, the address is right there. And Finn's like, okay, well, this is in the middle of the East River. And I'm like, so are many of the SVU locations. (laughs) Like some of the locations are like 1000 East 44th Street. You're like, that is in Connecticut. So anyway, Finn goes, you thinking what I'm thinking? And Munch goes, we've been had, which I, I like their old school, like detective shtick that they have going on there. And so they bust out of there. Finn and Munch are uh, back at the precinct revealing what they found out, which is that Erica Smith is Emily. They found matches at four different clinics and hospitals, different aliases, always paid in cash, et cetera. So Munch breaks it down and is like, we've been focusing on a male attacker because of the quote unquote like sexual abuse, but what if it was Jamie and the injuries aren't even sexual? Like, and so Cragen goes, well, that's one way to ensure custody like, is to abuse the kid and then pin it on your ex. And Olivia's like, and if the daughter dies in the process, and then in slides Emile Skoda, J.K. Simmons wearing an aggressive Navy turtleneck and blazer, and he's like, that would be a bonus. Like, if this woman doesn't give a shit about her kids and her daughter is a means to an end, and that end is attention. And he explains that people who have suffered abuse in childhood tend to repeat this pattern. And that in in this case, it's kind of an extreme one because the rage is so apparent. But in the end, she's just wrapping herself in the warm cloak of victimhood, he says. And Stabler's like, well, then why hide it with all these aliases and shady hospital visits? Like, you know, that's kind of why these people will do the, like, the long-term poisoning with the leukemia and stuff like that to get all the attention out in the open. And he's like, well, it was to control the outcome. Like, now she can kind of help pin it on whoever she needs to so that she doesn't get in trouble for anything. And so now we're back talking to punk-ass Justin, and he's like, whatever. Like, he will not talk or help. And Stabler's like, you little shit, we are actually trying to help you. So if you could, like, just fucking stop being a dick for a second, you're gonna, you won't end up throwing touchdowns in the prison tag football league. So he's like, look, I have no idea how long Jamie was gone. The minute she left, I went for a run in the park because I was bored as hell. And I'm sure people saw me, but I didn't take names. Like, this kid is, like, fucking the worst. And he said he was gone an hour. He describes his route, where he ran. And then, like, when he got home, his stepmother chewed him out for leaving his sister alone. And he's like, who cares? She was asleep. And it's like, I don't I don't know. I just feel like, you know, you don't leave a seven-year-old at home in a New York apartment. Um, but Munch is like, okay, so Jamie could have hurt Emily before Justin got home, but Daddy Cragen is like, this is just more finger pointing. Like, we need proof, baby. And so Finn's like, what about the druggist? And I had not really heard that before, but that is a sexier name for a pharmacist. And so they go check in with this nosy doorman, and we do love a nosy doorman around here. So he is a wonderful SVU staple character. And this guy is like a full SVU TikTok parody. He never stops unloading bags like while he's talking to the cops. Like, we barely see a shot of this actor's face because he's just constantly constantly like removing bags from a car while delivering a full monologue about this family. And he's like, yeah, Jamie left with little Michael. Then Justin left, went on a run. I told him don't go to the park, but he doesn't remember Jamie coming back, but it could have been while he was taking a powder. And I just, I can't with a man talking about taking a powder, but here we are. Um, Munch shows up 
with interesting info from the pharmacist. Uh, He said that the receipt actually shows that she came after closing. She called up and bitched and moaned about like coming in to get this refill. So he stayed open for her and she was in and out in five minutes. So there was none of this hour-long wait bullshit that she told them. So back at the precinct, everyone's in a big meeting and Cabot is like, guys, this is not enough. Like even if we could prove she took Emily to all those hospital visits, you can't bootstrap aggravated child abuse to her conduct without a more definitive causal link. Munch is like, well, Skoda said this is about a need for attention. And I gave her my pager number and guess who's been paging me? And it looks like she's jonesing for a sympathy fix. And they're like, well, what are you thinking? And Munch is like, feed the junkie. So now Munch brings in Jamie. He's got her in interrogation. Everyone's watching on the other side of the glass. It's like the entertainment for the evening. And he's like, we're going to get Justin out of here and get him home to you. I mean, if that's cool with you, if you're going to take him back. And she's like, I don't know. He scares me. He might hurt Emily again just to get back at me. And he says, it must be tough to be an outcast in your own home. And Jamie's like, you don't know the half of it. And he goes, actually, I do. And he plops a folder down in front of her. And it's her file from when she was a kid. And boy, she is delighted to see it. Like she acts like somebody wrote a biography about her and she's just getting a chance to look at it for the first time. And um, she has very 2000s eyebrows, this woman too. Like they are thin, barely their eyebrows. And so he says to her, yeah, she goes, I thought it was sealed. I thought my record was sealed. And he goes, I got it from a friend in children's services who remembered you and said that all her superiors were nervous about investigating an ambassador for sexually abusing his 11-year-old daughter. So twist, like we're finding out that Jamie has not had a wonderful childhood. Uh, Munch is like really handling her. Like he's really like, that must've been so hard for you. And then he's like, and how did your mother take it on? And she was like, well, she was just jealous because daddy couldn't stand to touch her. And it's like, yes, because he was a pedophile and your mother was far too old for him. So (laughs) that's what happened. Yeah, weird brag. um, (laughs) Yeah. And um, that's why she got sent to boarding school. She said she begged not to go, but what mother wants, mother gets. And that to me like echoes a little bit what Denny said about Jamie at the beginning. Like what Jamie wants, Jamie gets no matter who it hurts. He said something to that effect. So it's just interesting how this generational trauma happens. And so then Munch tells Jamie that He's like, well, here's the thing. Emily came out of her coma and she told us everything. And so you could see her face be like, oh, fuck. So then Munch is like, okay, let's talk hairbrush. And she's like, it's Justin's. And he's like, but with Emily's testimony. And she's like, Emily is a liar. Like suddenly we're, you know, defaming our seven-year-old coma daughter. And, uh, She starts telling Munch how Denny has poisoned Emily against her. And Munch is like, it's okay, just tell me your side. And Jamie's like, okay, we were driving home and Emily wouldn't stop crying. So she pulled over to talk to her. And that's when Emily told her about the Cuba trip. And so she pulled her out of the car and Emily hit her head on the curb. And Munch is like, come on, girl. And then she admits, okay, I shoved her, but not hard. I just wanted her to stop whining. So he's like, okay, well, did it work? And she goes, it was the first time she was quiet all day. She was really sleepy. So I put her to bed when we got home. But then when I came back from the drugstore, she was crying again. I told her she had to be a good girl so her new daddy would love her too, but she wouldn't stop. And she was doing it to spite me, which is like, I mean, trust me, I have dealt with four meltdowns from my three-year-old in the past 48 hours that were epic going on 45 minutes, like unconsolable meltdowns. Like, it's not about you. Like, it's just not about you. It's never about you. They're not doing anything to spite you. They are Yeah, kids' having brains a aren't there yet. And if they are, yeah. then there should be a movie about them being the devil. Like, I don't think a three-year-old <laughs> is 
has those parts of their brain figured out yet. Right. No, for sure. So then she said, I used the hairbrush to discipline her and my mom used a hairbrush on me, but Emily just kept screaming. And it's like, it's because you're spanking her with a fucking hairbrush. And perhaps it's also because she had a massive like blood clot forming under her skull and that was a little bit painful. So she said, Emily was screaming louder and louder. What was she supposed to do? And then Munch said, the only thing you could do. And then her face changes, like her face like drops into like, evil face. And she's like, and it's like, okay, Munch, this is what you wanted. And here it is. And she just goes, I threw her against the wall. So she said, Emily finally stopped crying. And she tucked her into bed, kissed her on the cheek and told her she loved her. And she's like, I just wanted her to stop crying. Is that too much to ask? And Munch is like, okay, I'm done charming this lady. And he's like fully disgusted. He's got his confession. And he walks out of the interrogation room and Cragen's like, good work, John. And Munch just keeps walking. Like this one, you can tell, like really hit him hard. Well, yeah, but also it's like, what are they going to do? High five and be like, good game, good game. Yeah, like, like no, we did sad. it. Yeah. But like he did kind of, that was all much. Like he got it out of her because I think he knew how to deal with her. And um, so Benson finds Munch on the roof and we find out that as I suspected, at least I'm sure most people suspected, Munch bluffed about Emily. She's not out of her coma. And Munch is like, like, Olivia's like, I don't know what we would have done if she had asked to see her. And Munch was like, yeah, she doesn't give a shit about her kids. Like, I knew she wasn't going to ask because she doesn't care. And Benson's like, how did you know? Like, how did you piece this all together? And he's like, well, when we searched the house and that four-year-old little boy, like that moment I talked about, she's like, when he was just looking at me, it reminded me of this little girl who I lived across the street from on the Lower East Side when I was growing up. She had that same look in her eyes, sad and lost. And she used to stand on her porch every afternoon. I've never seen a porch on the Lower East Side, but that's neither here nor there. And then- um, Maybe a stoop, he, a stoop. Yeah, a stoop. And so like when he came home from school, she would be standing there every day, like with a black eye, a bloody lip. And she never said anything. She just looked at Munch. And he was like a teen and was like too wrapped up in his own bullshit, he says, and he didn't pay attention. And then one day she wasn't there. And I found out that her mother threw her through a plate glass window. And he said, I went to the funeral and I saw her dad and that was the first time I saw a grown man cry. And they sent the mother to a sanitarium and the mother told Munch's mother she didn't get what all the fuss was about. She was the one who had to get a new window. So definitely a psychopath mom. And months later, he'd come home and like look up at the porch and he would swear he could see the little girl standing there with that same look. And he's like really sniffling. Like Munch is like getting very emotional and it's like kind of a different look on him. And, um, oh, I said final scene, but this isn't the final scene. The final scene is actually the next one where Munch goes to Emily's hospital room and she's still sitting there so tiny with her head all bandaged up and on, on you know, oxygen and machines. And he sits there and starts to read to her from, oh, the places you'll go. And then right in the middle of the Dr. Seuss, we fade to black and that's Dick Wolf. Ooh, a tough one. Yeah. You hope that she'll come out. You'll hope that like her brain swelling will go down and she'll come out. Of it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. SVU is good at that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. We're yeah. hoping for the best for Emily. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you for that. And we'll be back with some horrific real life true crime. Okay. So this case is about a girl named Elisa Esquerdo. 
Um, this happened in New York in the 90s, and it's very horrific. So it was like a day before Thanksgiving, 9.24 a.m., and there was a call from a man saying that a little six-year-old girl had stopped breathing. Um, and then when the police, firefighters, and paramedics arrived at the Rutgers housing projects in lower Manhattan, they found Elisa in her bed with deep red blotches all over her body. And it wasn't very clear what they were. Well, cigarette burns, like everyone's like, what is it? But her entire body was covered. Um, on the right side oh. of her body near the kidney was an enormous bruise. And she had other bruises on her face and around her temples. And obviously things just keep getting worse. Um, there were wounds around her genitals. And the bone of her right hand pinky was poking fully through her skin. Oh, my God. Um. A police lieutenant with 22 years of work experience at the time said it was the worst case of child abuse he had ever seen, and he said that to Newsweek. So going back in time, um, Elisa's parents met in a shelter for the homeless in 1987. Gus Izquierdo was a Cuban immigrant. Um, this is actually like very close to the episode in a lot of ways. So he was a Cuban immigrant, and he cleaned and served food at the homeless shelter. And Awilda Lopez was a Puerto Rican um, raised in Brooklyn who landed at the shelter with her two kids after breaking up with her boyfriend. Um, the two started hooking up, but Gus broke it off because Lopez was fully addicted to crack, and he was not for that crack lifestyle. But Elisa was born, um, and she was fully addicted to drugs when she was born, and social workers took her away and gave custody to Gus. And Gus, on all accounts, it was, like, new for him. Um, this was a surprise in his life, but on all accounts, a doting, caring father, like, did a great job, always asking for advice, like, wanting to be a good dad. Um, he got her into Mo a Montessori day school. Hello. And um, <laughs> he brushed her hair. And so everyone keeps talking like, oh, he brushed her hair. And I guess for a father, that's, like, huge, huge accomplishment, brushing your child's hair. But people said he was good. And... So this is very connected to the episode. While she was at the school at the YWCA, um, the Montessori School in Brooklyn, uh, Prince Michael of Greece wanted to, like, do community service work, and he was looking at different organizations to get involved in. And when he went to the Montessori School, Elisa, like, jumped into his arms and refused to leave him and, like, hugged him. And so they kind of had a connection, and he was obviously, like, taken by this girl who, like, hugged him and didn't want to leave him. Um, he knew, like, little about her life, but he did want to, like, pay for her tuition, and sh he just wanted to get involved beyond money as well. Um, and he just, yeah, he wanted to help her and wow. take care of the tuition and stuff, and there was no, like, weirdness or hanky-panky and stuff like that. So <sighs> um, Prince Michael of Greece had a connection with her in the school. And so... Like, while she was at school, uh, Gus was trying to raise her, and he tried to keep Lopez away. But she entered a drug rehab clinic and got married at the end of November 1991. And in that time, she won the right to have Elisa every other weekend. Uh, but Gus and then Elisa's teachers said that she would come back from those visits covered in bruises and very upset. She would throw up. She would refuse to walk into a bathroom. And it was, like, obvious what was going on. It was only the weekends oh that she was with her mother. So, Elisa even told a city social worker about these attacks, but the visits were still allowed to happen on the word of her mother saying that she did not hit her daughter. So then, poor Gus checked into a hospital in May 1994, and he was diagnosed with cancer and soon after died. Uh. 
Yeah, this is like a fucking Cinderella nightmare Hans Christian Andersen like story. Yeah. And so they sent Elisa to her mother, which is very, very fucked up. She at this point had five children with no job and no partner because her husband went to prison for stabbing her 17 times with a pocket knife. Oh, my God. And everyone tried to counter this decision. Like, Gus's cousin, Elsa Canizares, went to court seeking custody. Uh, The head of Elisa's school wrote to the family court judge, Phoebe Greenbaum, in support of the cousin to get custody and to attest to all the abuse. But the court and this dumb bitch just gave custody to the birth mother. And even Prince Michael got involved and was like, if you give her to the cousin, like, I will financially support, like— Everyone was begging to take this daughter away from the mother, and this fucking judge didn't. Um, The judge in the case said that the child welfare people advised her to give custody to the mother. Um, But child welfare, CWA, remained silent on the matter and cited confidentiality laws and refused to, like, confirm or deny. But the judge said that child welfare advised her to give custody to the mother. So pretty horrific. Um, Now, a little background. So, like, these confidentiality laws are very controversial and complicated. Um, They are there to help protect people who report child abuse. They're also there to protect those accused unfairly and privacy of the victims. But mostly, these laws seem to be to protect the government agencies over everything. The New York Times had a quote that said, too often, the confidentiality shield is used by the bureaucracy to sort of cover itself. Um, And that was said by the former city HR commissioner from the 1980s, uh, William J. Grinker. He believes that once a child dies, the need for confidentiality is no longer paramount. And if you know what went wrong, then you can prevent other deaths. But we'll get more into the laws and what happened after Elisa's death. But um, Elisa's decline began immediately after she went into her mother's custody. The mom pulled her out of Montessori school and enrolled her at the local public school, PS 126. Uh, That school called state and city child welfare offices after being concerned with her um, because she was, like, walking unevenly. And um, she, like, refused to play with people or to talk to other students. And then a bunch of bruises were showing up. So this school also called child welfare and the city and state level to communicate their concern. This was the fifth time someone reported that Elisa had been abused. The state refused to investigate because there wasn't enough evidence. So then Lopez actually withdrew Elisa fully from school and she virtually disappeared. She never enrolled her in another school, rarely let her out of her room. She wasn't allowed to watch TV or eat with her half-siblings who all showed no signs of abuse. So very, very close to Nick's Marie Brown. Like, I don't know what... Like, I really want to do an in-depth sort of psychological reading something. If anyone can reach out to us and tell us, like, what is this that someone picks, like, one child and the rest are fine? Um, I wonder if it was, like... She just hated like the how the dad like gave her such a good life. You know, it's like, or you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, you're in Montessori school, like you're out of there now. You know, like I don't know. Maybe it was just like because she had had like a nice life with her dad, and she was resented her or something. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, this is horrible. But it's also happened, you know, in another case we covered. So it must happen. Like, there must be a re not a reason, but some sort of yeah. something. Psychological explanation. Yeah, yeah, like outside of it. 
So she would have to go to the bathroom in her bed um, and or in a pot in her room, and it overflowed so much that it leaked into the apartment below, if you can imagine that. Um, neighbors confessed that they had frequently heard screams coming from the apartment, um, and a few neighbors said they called child welfare authorities, but nothing happened. So now more people are calling. So finally, on November 22nd, this bitch, the mom, was taken into custody, and Elisa Esquerdo died on November 22nd, 1995, of a brain hemorrhage. The mom was, like, screaming in the street that she didn't do it, uh, but basically she finally admitted that on November 20th, she hit Elisa so hard that she flew headfirst into a concrete wall. And then after, she didn't walk or talk after that. Um, And then the mom waited two full days before asking a neighbor to call for help. Police say um, she's shown little emotion since, uh, you know, like making these statements. She truly has shown no emotion. She thought that Elisa was possessed by the devil and that her evil caused her death. So she told friends that she would put snakes down her throat to exercise the demons, and she would hold her upside down using her as a mop. Like, it is so fucked up. And then this is, like, very connected to the episode. Two of her step-siblings told the grand jury that the genital abrasions were caused by a hairbrush, which Lopez used to torture her. Um, Her five siblings were placed in foster homes. Some ended up being adopted into a family, others placed in home after home, and the oldest went to live with his biological father, who was not involved in Elisa's life or death um, at all. And Awilda was charged with second-degree murder, and she pled guilty on June 25th, 1996. She pled guilty to get the deal of serving 15 years and then to become eligible for parole after that. But the following month, the judge went, never mind, bitch, you're sentenced to life. So she was sentenced to a life imprisonment. She was most recently denied parole in January 2022. And her next parole hearing is to be held in September of 2022. Hopefully no one ever lets her be released, but if it comes no. to it, maybe we'll, like, write some letters to the board closer to the I'm fall. I'm also, like, a little bit surprised that she didn't do, like, an insanity defense, right? Like, you thought that your daughter was possessed by the devil and you put snakes down her throat? Like, that seems like you're not mentally well. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I've read somewhere, but, like, I couldn't really—because I read that they wanted to really do a deal— because they didn't want to put the other siblings through testimony and through a trial. But then some of the siblings were quoted at the grand jury. So I'm not really sure what it was. That's why I didn't leave it in. Mm. But, like, that's why the deal kind of happened. They wanted to spare the other kids. Um, So also, after she pled guilty in all of that trial, in 1996, Governor George E. Pataki— He signed legislation that loosens the laws requiring secrecy in child abuse investigations. And this was a direct response from the death of Elisa Esquerdo. One part would require authorities to disclose information when a person is charged with child abuse and when an abused child dies, thus seeks to make investigators more accountable for their mistakes. And then the new law also called for eliminating a statute that requires the destruction of records when an allegation of abuse is investigated, but not substantiated. So basically, there's two types of categories for abuse cases. One is proven and the other is unfounded. And if it's unfounded, they were able to destroy the records, but that prevented future caseworkers from knowing about previous allegations involving a child. 
So that's fucked up. So now even if something is like unfounded or not substantiated, it stays in the records. And now the records must be preserved for up to 10 years after the child's 19th birthday with access to those records available only to child welfare workers to help establish a pattern of abuse. Oh my God. And, you know, you would think when things like this happen, you would feel guilty and want to make changes within the system. But a bunch of the child welfare experts and civil liberties people were so mad and said that it violated privacy of people who are falsely accused. I say, shut your fucking mouth. Um, some child welfare caseworkers staged a whole protest at City Hall. And in the article from the New York Times in 1996, some of the signs said, caseworkers don't murder children, politicians do. And it's like, I don't know, bitch. It seems like over, you know, the like people, schools, diplomat, the prince, people were complaining to you and you did nothing. So yeah. like, obviously politicians and money and shit are involved, but it's like, so are you. I just like can't see in what world a judge thinks that when there's a cousin willing to take, like, because I know that they try to like place you with family. When there's a cousin willing to take her and you're like, no, I'm going to put her with five other children and a woman who doesn't work and has had a history of drug abuse. It's just so, I don't know. Yeah, we should, we should find out if that judge is still working or what the fuck <laughs> happened to her, what dumbass shit she's still doing to this day because horrific. And I hope this haunts her every waking moment of her life. Um, and some of the people that were at the, this protest said, uh, we're being framed as incompetent child killers. And it's like, but children are dead. So who cares what people think about you? Like, it, it yeah. doesn't matter if your feelings are hurt and you have a bad reputation. Children are dying and you're supposed to be taking care of them and you're not. And obviously, I agree, like, they should be treated better, paid more, like, given... This should be a well-paying job. Yeah. But it is not. And uh, so, you know, fast forward, um, in 2012, the Office of Children and Family Services... They this whole time have been quietly working to limit access to case reports. And in 2007, even tried to get the law changed. And it's like, what? why wouldn't you do the work? Like, instead of working so hard to, like, hide all these records for your incompetence, why don't you work this hard in protecting children? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. And But they did in 2008 make a new policy that if there are living siblings or other children in the home, even if there is a fatality report that is not in the best interest to release because for the siblings. But the fatality reports do not release names of deceased children or their caseworkers or anybody by name. They just have a list of every complaint of abuse or neglect involving the child. So the child welfare agency's response to complaints and an assessment of where the response was adequate. So no one's names would even ever be released to anybody. You know what I mean? I don't understand yeah. why they're working so hard for like, quote unquote, these like fake privacy things. Like, yeah. Um, the New York Times had an article one year um, later, like after her death, about how traumatized New York was and creating an overpowering desire to find meaning in a senseless tragedy and to find ways to save all the Elisas of the future. But they don't. You know, they fucking don't. And we we think like the internet and Twitter and 24 News, like news coverage has made us this quick to forget news and move on. But it seems like it's always kind of been 
a part of humanity where something happens, we're distraught, and then we forget about it because we covered the Nix Marie Brown death that happened in a very eerily similar way in 2006. And then the outrage subsides. And in 1987, a girl, Lisa Steinberg, died at the hands of her adoptive uh, father, Joel Steinberg. And the city devoted a lot of resources and commitment to training and changing the program, but eventual budget cuts are always made. And it seems like every 10 years, New York has just, like, horrific, horrific deaths that are, like, fully attached to the incompetence of these agencies. Um, (sighs) And caseworker jobs have a turnover rate of 49% a year. Yeah. So, no, like, half the people working don't even have experience. Yeah. So this is like it's depressing. Like, it's a fucked system. No, it's a fucked system and it's depressing. And it, I mean, honestly, to bring it back to like what's going on right now, like we're going to just see more of this when you don't allow people to have reproductive rights. You know what I mean? Like the there's not systems to protect the children that we have alive in this country. You know what I mean? And now it's like, oh, let's just force people with no resources to have more. And then we'll see what happens when when these agencies that are already strapped and overworked are, like, truly pushed to breaking point, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, but this is horrible. This is, like, these cases are really so fucking hard to hear about. And, ugh. And it's, like, I wish her dad hadn't died. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's just, like, the prolonged abuse of it all. Like, that so many people tried to help her. And, like, you can't deny the system failed her. Like, obviously, it's the mother's fault. She is in prison. Yes. But, like... Right. There's checks and balances for a reason, and none of them worked this time. Yeah. Yeah. So... Ugh. Well, we have, you know, a cool guest. Yeah. As always, <laughs> we're going to cleanse your palate with a fun convo. So stay right where you are. Guys, our guest today is a very talented actor who you've probably caught in many a TV show. He's been in everything from the new Magnum P.I. He's had a spot on Law & Order Organized Crime, and he was in a personal favorite of mine, Bosch. Maybe you've heard of it. But you know him from today's episode as Denny Correa. Guys, enjoy our chat with the very talented Yancy Arias. Before we get into... SVU, your career, how cute, coaching Little League. Do you love yeah, it? Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. It's, you know, it's weird because this year started off kind of slow. I mean, I, I've been auditioning through Zoom quite a bit. So I'm up for a couple of things. Hopefully they work out. But, you know, right now I'm very focused on seeing the growth of my son in in team sports and baseball particularly and all of his uh, teammates, they're all just wonderful kids, the great families, and I'm, I'm having a great time sharing through uh, all of my life experience, also playing baseball since I was a kid. That's great. So, but you live in LA now, but you were born and raised in New York, born right? Born and raised in New York. It was so, it's so funny because this morning I had a conversation with a, with a NYPD captain who's actually retiring. He's, he's a friend of mine and a, fr- a mutual friend's. Uh, with another uh, military friend of mine. I, I, I play a lot of cops. I play a lot of military. So, uh, especially in these last 10 years. And um, it, it's just been like, you know, I, I, I've befriended some very wonderful people who actually, you know, do great work and really care about the community. And so I vibe with them, you know, to help me, you know, you know, be as authentic as I possibly can for any role that they ask me to play. Um, and so he 
coincidentally is from the Lower East Side, like where I was born from, you know, just one conversation catching up, you know, with someone like that, you know, how it brings you back to the city and everything that it mm. was and what it is now. It's, it's incredibly different from the seventies and eighties. <laughs> so, um, it's just, yeah, I mean, it, it, so much nostalgia, you know, come, you know, waves of that just keeps coming over me when I'm, when I think about New York and how much I miss it and how different it is now. And, you know, and being in Los Angeles now 20 years, I guess I'm kind of like an Angelino by default now. I, you know, but, but it, uh, New York is always in my heart. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. we feel the same. We both live in LA, but are former New Yorkers and we miss it a lot. Do you always do um, so much research with your characters and like talking to like different law enforcement? Kara is a big Bosch head. So, she, you know, you were the okay. mayor. I was the mayor. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, for so, sure. Yeah. What's your research always? Always, With all of your characters? always, always. I mean, ever since, um, ever since I was 14, one of my first coaches, uh, Jack Romano, uh, he was, God bless his soul. He was the, the head of the, uh, acting department at a place called Stage Door Manor. Um, people like Natalie Portman went there and, uh, Josh Charles and, uh, uh, I, I went there with Josh and, uh, he was amazing and he taught us right out the get-go the huge responsibility that we have as actors to to play the roles um as authentic and as informed as possible and you know he's talking to teenagers you know and teenagers have such a short uh attention span but i knew since 12 that this was what i was going to do for the rest of my life um I, I grew up growing up in New York, having so much diversity, having some, been exposed to so many different experiences in life. You know, it, there was certain, there was always a sense of service, and I had a lot of women in my family. My grandmother uh, helped a lot of people on the Lower East Side get their paperwork, you know, to be citizens, and I, she was like the matriarch of the neighborhood, and everybody came to her. So I met so many wonderful people, and I saw so much service coming out of her apartment, you know, that I, I was like, well, what can I do of service for people, you know, and and. It turned out that she threw me on stage uh, with the blessings of my mom to sing at this, you know, um, menudo contest. <laughs> oh, wow. It was a lip syncing competition, but I was the only one who sang during uh, the break. And whereas people were getting up, they realized I was singing and they all sat down before they went to the concession stand. And they, they followed along and they started, you know, getting into the song. And I... I, I uh, I felt that connection for the very first time where I was, you know, giving people something to listen to and just to enjoy for a minute. From there, I, I, you know, my family realized I had something and they nurtured it and they helped me meet the right people like Jack Romano, James Green. And I went to Carnegie Mellon and continued my, con my, my college education there, Miss Saigon, continued my education there, met Alan Savage in, at Miss Saigon on Broadway. And um, he was my coach for the rest of my life. And just these people to, to answer your question yes lots of research yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just gave you the whole background on how i got there uh but yes no uh and there's there's a there's a big thing i like to share with any of my fellow actors or anything that i do is is basically you know we have a huge responsibility for for any soul that we take on because people we're, we're mirrors for everyone so you know if 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 we're blessed to do a story that that is based on truth or is truth, or if you can find the truth in any story, you got to know that there are people out there that that actually relate with that story that you're going to be seen in. Well, you mentioned Miss Saigon, and we obviously did a little research. You did that show for five years. 
at a certain point, is it like, ugh, like, how do you keep it going for five years? I remember sitting my very first, I had to, before starting rehearsals, I had to watch the show and I sat and watched the show and I couldn't stop crying. There wasn't a minute that I wasn't crying throughout the whole two hours, just in appreciation, you know. So I started first, the first year as an understudy and I, I, and I followed and, I, and with the intent, they had hired me with the intention to uh, possibly take over for the role that I did was Twee. Uh, because at that point they were, they weren't sure if the actor who was playing Twee was going to continue with the um, uh, uh, with the show, and so uh, I understudied a couple of times. They loved what I did, and of course I poured my heart into that role. They saw it, they got it, and then when he was ready to leave by the second year, then I took over the role for the next three years, and so you know, and in the interim which brings us to why we're even having this, you know, fun conversation. <laughs> um, I got to do a lot of great New York shows like Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, Law and Order, then uh, NYPD Blue and New York Undercover at the time and uh, One Life to Live. I mean, I was recurring on all of these shows. And so I really didn't have a chance to to ever, you know, feel like, you know, something was over, you know, it, 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 I never got bored for any reason whatsoever. I, I was living a young guy's life, you know, in this, in this experience in theater and television and film. So, yeah, so I, I, I had a great time basically getting up at six in the morning, get to set at seven, you know, shoot till four o'clock, five o'clock, get about an hour, two hour break, and then get my butt to the theater and rock and roll with there. You know, so it was like, yeah, it, that's it a young man's a, life. That's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> now I got two kids and I can't even imagine that right now. I know. Times <laughs> they have are, changed. They are my new show right now. Yeah. Greatest production of my life. <laughs> so, yeah, because so, I saw yeah. like on your IMDb in like 98, you did Law & Order original and then right. you did Sopranos in 99 and that's then like right. in SVU in 2000. And I was like, yeah. this feels like that might have been the time period where you were like, okay, I'm blowing up. Like, was that like when you were like, things are happening for me or what? Well, it was a fair very interesting thing because um, I left in 2006 uh, from from Miss Saigon, but then I came back in 2009 when Leah Salonga came back and a couple of other originals, um, and they and they wanted me to come back and join them, and I said, "Yeah, let's go." Um, and so when I came back, uh, I had a great time. Leah was awesome. You know, she's the original Miss Saigon on Broadway, and. Um, I got the offer for the Wild Party. I workshopped while I was doing Miss Saigon. I worked. I, I workshopped the Wild Party with uh, Mandy Patinkin, Eartha Kitt, God bless her soul. Yeah. Um, uh, Tony Collette, and uh, what piv the pivotal moment was right before opening night when two of my songs got cut, and I was just like, you know, that probably wouldn't happen if if I had you know just a little bit more you know, star power in this situation, you know? And so I, I just have to go to LA. And around that time, I say, I say why LA? Because about five of my friends who are New Yorkers, um, they happened to be in LA in pilot season that particular year. And they all got on the movie Traffic. And- Oh, yeah. And then I asked my agents, how, how did I not even get to read for this. This is right up my alley, you know? And my agent was like, oh, and they were paradigm at the time. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. But a lot of these people were in LA and they really cast it in LA because it took place in LA and San Diego, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, oh man, I guess I gotta be in LA. 
<laughs> yeah. When you got when you got cast in Law and Order and then you got cast in SVU, I mean, like we hear from a lot of New Yorker, well, we hear from New York actors, but then especially if you're born and raised, was it like extra special to be like, I'm in the Dick Wolf universe now? Dick Wolf like, universe, absolutely. And I just recently got a chance to go again on- I uh, saw, because yeah. I'm watching OC. I oh, saw yeah. you just in- <laughs> That Christmas episode of OC. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was really cool that I came back to play like a Jersey cop because it was, yeah. you know, I, 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 in those three roles, I think I was, a, was I a lawyer the first time? I don't remember what, what was the first thing. I forget the what second, you were, I didn't, in regular one, Law and Order. Regular Order, yeah. But the second one, I was a, um, I was a dad trying to. Yeah, this uh, is the one that we're covering today. Den, yeah, Denny Correa. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was an interesting uh, episode and, uh, you know, it was that it, it? It was basically one of the marks of my career, where like I'm always that guy that you did. You know, like the like, what do they call it, the red herring, like that. You think that they're, you know, that they're the guy, but they're not. You know, so I'm, it's like because I, you know, for whatever reason, when in my work they can see my edge, so they're like, oh, he's edgy, so we can, he could easily be a suspect, but then he's not, and then you yeah, know, you get yeah, to see all yeah. Of his, you know, but not you know. only just edge, but with heart. I mean, this right. character is not black and white, like good or bad. You know, we it's like a very layered performance. Formats. Yeah, thank you for that. And that's that's my goal every time is like always show that you know the the diversity of the human being, you know, all all the all the complexities of a person, you know. Um and uh yeah, so so in that particular episode I was very very uh honored to be in that. Um because they gave me so much to do and and they allowed me to play and then allowed me to give them what I what I felt was appropriate for that character and and for their show. And I remember using that particular those one or two of those scenes uh for many years after that in my reel until i guess probably even 2005 maybe i started changing up my reel and putting other things but you know to update but that that was a that particular episode got me a lot of work, actually. <laughs> oh, hey, good. I don't yeah. know if you know this, but on Hulu, you're the thumbnail of the episode. Yes, you know what's it's so funny? <laughs> complete, complete transparency. This morning, I I clicked on and I wanted to see the episode just to see if I could. I, I didn't get a chance to because obviously I take care of my child and everything. So, <laughs> and I'm not gonna let her watch. You know, as <laughs> for <SVU>. you, <laughs> so she was watching Peppa Pig. By the way, yeah, <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> Why is it not this than that? You know, like, a, like oh, Yo, Peppa's darling. brutal to her dad. Peppa's is, brutal is, to her dad. Is, we gotta watch is. it with the kids watching Peppa. Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. So, so um, when I clicked on, I saw the thumbnail was my face. I was like, oh, that's cool. They're like, yeah, okay. you know. Do so. you have any like specific memories? I mean, that show was like, I know it was like. 20 years ago or more. Um, but like, that was, you know, just the beginning of the second season. I don't right. know if they had like fully hit their groove yet, but I think people knew that it was starting to become like popular. Like, what was the vibe when you were on set and any special memories of anybody that you can... For that, for that, I mean, you know, being even then in the Law and Order franchise, you know, that was like for all of us New York actors was like the apex. You know what I mean? Like, we're there... We're in it. We're in the city shooting. You know, we got cameras rolling. You know, in our territory, in our in neighborhood. You know that that yeah that's huge for a lot of New York, especially young New York actors. You know, um, it, it, that was our goal. Like, it, like our goal was to be on Broadway. Our goal was to be on Law and Order. You know what I mean? Like that's you know. So having it at that point, having done it twice, was just you know 
icing on the cake and beauty. So, and and to no surprise, everyone was really cool. The vibe was awesome. You you know, New Yorkers shooting for New York. You know what I mean? So people really knew what they were doing. And and in terms of a well-oiled machine, it was running the right way, the way it should be, especially under someone like Dick Wolf. And but um, yeah, it was it was totally respectful and cool and 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 all the people were right on and i remember ice t was cool he was just hanging out in his dresser dressing room as i passed by and i was like i was honored to meet him as i listened to his music too and i was just like yeah i walked walked right back and then when i after i did my thing he was just like yeah man you know like he was like you know giving me his stamp (laughs) of approval by going yeah man you know you know so it was it was nice to to um you know, to get all those guys, you know, uh, uh, behind you and whatnot. And um, very supportive, very supportive. And uh, I have a technique that a lot of people use in, in my business where we use music um, to get us to certain places. So every character I play has a different kind of music that goes on, whether it be jazz or rock or rap or, wow. you know, whatever, it, you know, uh, Latin music, whatever music is is specific to that character that they would have probably listened to in the kitchen when they were three years old to seven years old. That music is what I play for every character. So I find that music for every character. So I use that to help me prep before five minutes before they say, okay, we're ready for your, you know, your shots. Let's go. And I'm already there. I'm already, you know, so, so music is a huge part of my life as well. Do you remember what music this character listened to? Danny, at the time, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, I was trying to think. I'm like, what's the vibe music for like a guy whose ex-wife is crazy and is trying to take away? Yeah, but who also teaches dance. Right. But is trying to take away his daughter who's currently in a coma. What's the music? What's the... (laughs) Well, at that time... Okay, so at that time, I was was heavily into Mark Anthony. I love his music. And and I met him a few times. I have mutual friends who are best friends with him. So that was the music that was playing. You know, for me, um, uh, and there's a really great song about betrayal, and um, that was a song I was playing, and it, it always got that song always got me. It was just like, it's just like, just dig it in and just All like, right. ah, you know. So as soon as I heard like even the first, you know, first bars, it was like, all right, let's go, you know. So. Yeah, and then just play, you know, play out the situation and, and take on take on the people that I had to take on and convince them of what's going on and what the truth is for this guy, you know. Yeah. So it was it was it was uh, it was definitely uh, exhilarating, and you know, being a New Yorker, shooting in New York again, you know, with a great crew, a New York crew. I mean, that every time I do it is uh, that alone gets just hits me with all the nostalgia and a pang in my chest of just overwhelming gratitude and just like let's go let's make this happen like you know and 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 let's do the best that we can um with it and uh that just happened to me back in november when i got to shoot and you know uh, the episode the christmas episode of oc you know law and order and and having to work with those guys and it was such a great comeback because it was like many years after i had left new york living in new york and and i remember like my first day i'm, I'm coming on set and the night before, I just managed because I, I only had like five days to prep for this. This was an offer, and and uh, I was told in like three or four days I got to fly to New York, and I said, "Oh shoot!" So I get I get there the day before I have to film, so I'm researching online before I go on um, about what's the closest police precinct where the incident took place, 
And I, I called the precinct. I said, can I have an appointment with one of the captains, you know, or, or even the sergeant just to like, you know, sit with him and wow. just to feel him out. You know, uh, I shoot this day on Friday. Uh, I get in on Wednesday. Can I meet with you on Thursday? And they were like, sure, no problem. It turns out where I was staying was only 15 minutes away from the precinct. So uh, I got a chance to sit down with those guys. They, they were so giving and so wonderful. And I was able to then just like drop in, take all that information they gave me from New Jersey, understanding the logistics and the difference between both cities and their laws. Because literally, I found out that there's a lot of laws that are different right over the GW. Yeah. Uh, between New York and... and, and, and um, Fort Lee? Fort Lee, yeah. thank you. Fort Lee to, to, to Police Department. Fort Lee, these guys come in from New York, do their crime, and hustle back into New York so that they don't get charged for the same crimes. Oh. In the same, in the, on the same level. So a lot of craziness was going on even while we were shooting. So like going, coming on set, having that information was like thrilling. And it, it was it was like a, a nice welcome back, you know, back to New York and, and, you know, having that vibe on set, on a law and order set, mind you, you know. Yeah. To, um, to, and to, did you reconnect with Maloney? Did he remember you? Because like you have a big scene with him in this in this episode from 2000 where he's like, pressing you for a confession and then yeah, now 20 no. years later you're like reconnecting and I was worried for your character because you're trying to arrest his son and we all know how Elliot Stabler feels about his right. children like of course. I was like he's gonna get punched like yeah, I was worried yeah, about yeah. you yeah no he was very focused and he did you know there was probably one wink of an like blink of an eye where he, he looked at me and was like why do I know this guy but yeah we didn't get into that we didn't get into that and that you know it's, and it's been such a long time that you know, obviously, with everybody they've worked with, they, there's no way that they're going to remember Denny Correa. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? I know. It's so funny because it's like, even if you gave the premise, even if you're like, you remember my ex-wife was psycho and she was beating up our kid? And it's like, yeah, I don't remember that. That's happened a bunch of times on oh, the show. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course. And then, you know, Mariska, she was so sweet. We had a scene they actually cut out. Such a cool scene. I wish they kept it. Um, but we had this great connection. We had a great vibe that day. And I, I was internally geeking out because I, I love her work. I love her on the show. And, you know, and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to impose that in, in, in any way, shape or form. I just wanted to do it through my work and give her my best. And she felt that and she was really nice and supportive. And, you know, that, that was a great experience. So. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Well, so you've worked on so many TV shows, been on so many sets. Um, what is the sign of like a great set and then have you ever experienced when you arrive and you're like, oh, this is going to be a mess <laughs> or like, uh oh, <laughs> uh, this like what are the differences between like a solid set or when you it might not be so solid? Well, yeah, it's interesting because as a producer and I've produced myself, I one of the great things or the great caveats of, of producing is that you you understand the amount of pressure they're all going through to get a, a project done, whether it be fine-tuned, well-oiled running machine or, you know, some somewhat chaotic. So you understand what it takes, you know, for them to have finally the grace of being able to put up their production. So I sympathize, man. I, and and I've, I've learned early on how to be flexible with, with, with everyone and appreciate. So for me, my only concern is I have to be ready. So I do my prep work on the day that I show up. That's a celebration of my preparation. And no matter what happens, whatever delays, whatever this, whatever that, or everything's running great, we're going to have a good time that day because it's a celebration. That's my attitude about it. And, and that was taught to me early on 
through sports because I do martial arts and I do, you know, I played baseball before and, you know, and I don't remember where, who told me that, but that was pivotal and key, you know, for my life moving forward to, to really just enjoy the process and to really just, you know, appreciate and celebrate, especially after, you know, doing all your research, right? You know, because, you know, uh, um, because there, there are times early on, many young actors fall through this kind of a pitfall where they over-focus on their research and they forget to live. They forget to breathe. Simple things like that. Just yeah. breathe, breathing through your nose and <sighs> dropping in and, you know, letting the, the, the work do what it's going to do. So when you show up with the right attitude to, you know, to work, to just celebrate and you're dropped in and you're trusting all your, 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 you know, your, your research and your, your preparation, you're trusting that, then no matter what happens, it's a blessing and you're just doing your thing, you know, and you're doing your best. You know? Yeah. That's awesome. That is very beautiful. I like very your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Life and sports. And I, I agree. I played sports my whole life and I feel like you learn a lot of lessons to take with you. <laughs> Any um, final tidbits you'd love to share with our listeners from SVU or, and then any upcoming projects that we should all watch out for you? Or any tidbits from Bosch for me, if you want. Yes. Bosch. Yes. <laughs> Bosch was great. I mean, I'm a big Bosch Titus. head. Yeah, Titus Welliver, amazing. Titus has been on SVU twice. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's and so tight. has Jamie Hector. He Jamie was Hector. on a he was a very little part probably at the beginning of his career, but yes, like yes. I I clock all the Boshy people on the show. Yeah, no, <laughs> he, he's totally amazing. Um and a New Yorker as well. And uh yeah, Jamie, I ended up becoming great friends with him and we um I put him in a movie called Canal Street that I produced and he did amazing in that. Um here's a tidbit about any set. Um, you know, especially if you're thinking about writing, producing, and directing in, a, in any way, as an actor, you never know where your next job is coming from. So everyone's paying attention. So just go in there and celebrate and have a great time, have a great attitude and rock and roll. And somehow, some way, someone took note of that. And, you know, years later, you might need a job, you're in between jobs, suddenly you get a phone call because of who you are and what, you know, the person you are and your great soul and how hardworking you are. Someone's going to call, you know, call you up and be like, yo, remember that day we worked on that set and I asked for your phone number? I got this great part for you. You're perfect for me. You know what I mean? It's important that you are nice to everyone on set. And as far as SVU, like I said before, I mean, that is a, a complete honor, uh, the, the law and order franchise, uh, everything they involved. I, I have friends still in it, rocking it, doing shows for them. And I'm always, I'm always, you know, without imposing, I'm just like, yo, what's up? How you doing? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't forget me. You know what I'm saying? If, you know, cause I, I, you know, I play on Chicago PD or something, you know, yeah. whatever. You know, You're I mean? like, like, I could be a fireman. Yeah, I could Come be on, a fireman, let's go. you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, so let's go. Wow, he is so cool. I mean, what a nice guy. He's been doing it for so long. Like the Broadway to television to movies trajectory has been... Uh, I love a coaching Little League moment. Yeah. Honestly, that always gets me like excited for life. Yeah. Because I had a good time and 
playing Little League, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I played softball. I love that shit. Yeah, except the coach's daughter was always the pitcher. And it's like, I'm sorry, she's not even that good. So, like, <laughs> That's so if true. If she was good, I'd be like, okay, yeah, for sure. But it's because I remember when I played basketball, Brittany was just better than us and her dad was the coach. But it's like, well, of course, she's yeah. better than us. Yeah. But Christina, you weren't even that good. So I don't know. <laughs> Why were you pitching the whole time? All right, post-mortem, <laughs> post-mortem on legacy. What did we learn that fucking I, inherited trauma is real? And You can't judge a book by its cover just because someone's wearing a little suit and has a soccer mom haircut. They could be raping their daughter with a hairbrush. Oh, so, God. I don't know. <laughs> I think she was spanking her, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no. That's so true. I didn't really think about how this episode was a lot about like, you know, classism and stuff and how you think this fry cook who's an immigrant from another country is, everyone looks at him as the bad guy. Also, he's the man. But really, it's the, yeah, it's the buttoned up mom with the in 2000s eyebrows and the, you know, three the wealth. Yeah. So just don't, don't judge a book. But also... I mean, it's like, I want to be like, see, if you see something, say something. Let's keep an eye on all of our children and not be afraid to say stuff. But it's like, people said things a million times with Elisa. And unfortunately, you know, it wasn't enough. And it just feels like the system is so fucked. But, um, you know, what else? I guess try not to hook up with your Zumba instructor in rehab. It's probably going to go down a road that's not great. But um, Yeah, but it's like you're sober, like, yeah. you need something. <laughs> yeah, I guess. You're going to fuck the Zumba instructor. You're, like, not doing pills. Yeah. And people meet in rehab and stuff, too, even though it's against the rules. I know people meet there and, and end up together. I know people who have. Um, But, yeah, this is, like, this is a classic episode. I'm glad we did it. But really tough. The crime was, oh, my God. I just can't believe every 10 years there's, like, a landmark horror showcase in New York and, like, nothing changes. And I'm sure there are in many other states the same situation, but... Yeah, stop having kids. Stop forcing people having kids, like, unless you really want to. Yeah, unless you have the emotional ability to take care of them, I suppose. Um, Yeah, and yeah, if you're going to think your daughter is filled with a demon, don't have a child. Or like, why didn't you just let all the other people that wanted her take her? Like, if call up that cousin and go, hey, I think this one has demons. Can you take her? Like, (laughs) it's like, I don't understand. Like... It's it's a, it's an illness. I mean, but uh, that does actually lead us right into this week's What Would Sister Peg Do, which is our weekly segment where we give you guys an article, an organization, a book, some kind of resource to help you uh, learn a little bit more about the topics that we touched on in today's episode or possibly donate and um, help, you know, these organizations. So today we wanted to highlight Prevent Child Abuse America. Their website is preventchildabuse.org. They are the U.S.'s oldest and largest organization committed to preventing child abuse and neglect before it happens. Uh, They rely on a nationwide network of state chapters and nearly 600 healthy families, America home visiting sites, which provides parents and caregivers a wide variety of services and resources all around the country. So they cover a lot of things, child physical and sexual abuse, neglect, even peer abuse and bullying. So their work runs the whole gamut. And if you'd like to get more involved or learn about them or donate, you can check out their work, like I said, at preventchildabuse.org. And if you're ever interested in uh, finding our, uh, your driving, you can't write this down right now. All of our What Would Sister Pegs are in a story highlight on our Instagram 
Instagram called WWSPD. And you can check out today's as well as all of our past ones. Also, speaking of Instagram, I loved what you posted with iced tea as like the iced tea cardboard at Kane's Chicken or Crane's. Yeah, or something I don't know. like that. I want to see it. A, a couple listeners it. have sent it to us. I don't know what part of the country that is, but like, and he's wearing the t-shirt. It's not like, some people will send us like, you know, at a, at like a place, the iced tea, like tin that, that serves iced tea will have a picture of iced tea on it. Okay, cute. This is like a full spawn. This is, iced tea is doing the spawn for like, and people say that chicken is good too. Yeah, if we're ever on the road in the South, yeah. wink, wink uh, we will hopefully get a nice tea cup, cardboard cutout chicken. Okay, yeah. next week, back to business. Uh, we'll be doing episode Starved. That's season seven, episode eight. Uh, he, Hulu, Peacock. I say Hulu every week and I was just about to mispronounce it. <laughs> um, Hulu, Peacock, VPNs, the internet, libraries. Get to it. And guys, you can keep emailing us and sending us DMs. We love to hear from you and we are so thankful that you listen. We'll see you next week. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixer, John Bradley. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.